You're listening to Opera Innovations, a podcast brought to you by ABA Technologies. This week on Thought Leaders, we'll be speaking with Tom Freeman as he introduces you to his life and how he came to the field of behavior analysis. We are talking today with my office buddy for now, Tom Freeman, who is the Senior Vice President at ABA Technologies. And he has been dedicated to ABA Tech's mission to disseminate the benefits of behavior science to the world. But on his role now, he helps create and present both the instructional content for the online program and also a lot of our online CE continuing education courses. But he has quite the background from what I've heard, just being able to share an office with him for the last 11 months. It's been 11 months. And I would like to hear and share with you more about it. So, Tom, Hi. where did you come from? <laughs> How'd you get well, here? Um, uh, I was born in 1953. We moved, I was born in Chicago. We moved to New York. Uh, when I was about five years old, um, my uh, so I lived on Long Island. Actually, grew up on Long Island, and always considered myself a New Yorker. I'm a big Yankee fan. So, um, and um, you know, my fam most families have their problems, and my family was uh, reasonably dysfunctional. <laughs> so, I I grew up in a situation with I had two older sisters, and. Um, my parents were separated when I was six years old. I think the, it was a rather um, difficult separation. I, as I recall, the police came in and actually removed my father from the house. I was six um, because he was, he drank a lot. He was alcoholic. He was a very um, productive person. He worked in Madison Avenue. He was a, a, one of the madmen. He was an advertising man. And uh, for my entire life that I can remember, he was working on the Reynolds metals count, Reynolds aluminum foil, oven tempered for flexible strength. That was my <laughs> yes. dad that put me through college. So um, uh, he was, but those guys drank like fishes in those offices, and um, he was part of that culture. Um, he'd grown up in a culture, his family was Germanic, and they always drank and sang at the bars, and so he, he grew up in a very heavily drinking society, and he became alcoholic, and he and my mom began to have major problems. Um, she also had problems from her background, um, that she had a difficult upbringing as well. Her father uh, died when she was 17, and um, it was just a difficult family life. They were from the South. and. Um, so my parents had their problems and my mom had some psychiatric problems she'd actually been in a psychiatric hospital when i was very young which i don't remember but um, after my parents were separated my mom was in and out of psychiatric facilities because she had very severe depression she's a very sensitive person extremely smart um, but had a lot of problems and so uh, really suffered from major depression and had many suicide attempts so as I was growing up, um, I began dealing with my mom's uh, suicidal behavior when I was in junior high school, because that's the first suicide attempt I remember. And so she'd be going in and out of hospitals, and there were times when I would go visit her. In fact, you know, with my dad not being there, he would come and visit us every Sunday, um, take us out. But, you know, so I got kind of a, 
interesting view of life from that perspective. I also became quite ill when I was young. I had asthma to the point where the doctors had thought I wouldn't survive. So they had told my parents um, I was probably going to die. I was in and out of oxygen tents. So I spent a lot of time in hospitals and spent a lot of time, you know, at home, missing lots and lots of school. So I would sit around and read encyclopedias and write reports about things I was interested in. Um, so I developed really bad study habits. I was a terrible student. I mean, I, early on, I was fine. I would just go into school and I'd catch up. You know, I'd miss two, week, two months worth of work and I'd catch up in a week. But by the time I got into high school and was having to deal with, like, calculus and stuff, it was not so good. So my first couple of years in college were um, pretty much of a throwaway. Um, given my parents' history, I, too, had a, a collegiate substance abuse problem, one might say. But then I got over it by the time I was a junior and started sort of knuckling down and working hard. I was a psych and an English major by the time I got out. When I went in, I thought it was going to be a physics and an astronomy major because I wanted to work for NASA and I wanted to do like, uh, um, I just wanted to work for NASA basically. But um, between my um, substance abuse as a freshman, um, it didn't really go well with math classes and stuff. So, But I really was interested in psychology because I was interested in why people do what they do. Obviously, coming from my family background, there was a lot of stuff in there that I was trying to figure out. Why are people acting like this? So um, I was really interested in psychology. Um, strangely enough, interested in parapsychology because I really thought that people like might have extrasensory perception. I wanted to study that because I thought it would be interesting to study that scientifically. Um, so I was interested in that. And I know um, that we've talked about your ESP yeah, book. ESP book, yeah. It's sitting I, I right here really, on your shelf. I was very interested in that, and um, just to see what the science said. And what I found out by talking to a lot of people is that uh, it was considered so strange and outside the, nor the mainstream that, like, there was no way to get work in that field. There was no way to... Like, people just made fun of it. You couldn't really get serious funding for anything. And I even did my senior project, actually, in, in college. I got a psych professor to agree to do my senior project. The first half was to review all the research literature. The second half was to do my own experiment on precognition using a random number generator from a computer, which I actually got some results. But, you know, it was I learned some stuff from that that um, was interesting because I had people fill out in a... a uh, um, a questionnaire to say whether or not they thought that the the um, the precognition would exhibit itself in this experimental context, and that was what I used as my determining factor as to you know I was testing because they had this whole thing called sheep's and goats and people that were believers, non-believers. Anyway, the person who showed the most um, proclivity towards this, she had really high, I mean, way above chance in terms of her ability to uh, predict these random numbers. And she said her grandmother had it and her mother had it and she had it. And she totally believed in it, but she didn't believe it would show up in this experiment. And so her data completely skewed my data set to be, she was a non-believer, even though she was a believer. And so I got, it, it was chance. If I had put her in the other group, I would have had results above chance, but you know, you learn, live and learn. So that was, um, I, I actually had come across Skinner in college and um, had read Beyond Freedom and Dignity and thought, 
um, who is this guy? <laughs> who is this guy to talk about beyond freedom and dignity? You know, and I, I found my paper recently that I wrote on that course in college. Yeah, I found the paper, and it, the first line of that paper is uh, the interesting thing about B.F. Skinner is that he is such a, a terrible theoretician, but an excellent experimenter, hmm. <laughs> which is actually sort of, in a way, true because he wasn't a theoretician. You know, he was just. And I didn't understand. I didn't understand what he was getting at. I didn't, it took me a while to figure out what was going on. Anyway, once I graduated college, um, I didn't want to go straight into grad school. I was sort of tired of academia, and I wanted to get some real-life experience. So I went out in the, in the world to try to get a job. I wanted to work at an institution if I could, given I'd seen my mom in and out of institutions. And um, many times, like I visited her at one institution one time, when, um, you know, it was when I was older and I was the only one home with her and the cops actually had to knock down the door at our house because she had called a friend of hers and fallen asleep on the phone because she had taken uh, second alls. And I had come home from school and I was napping, you know, so all of a sudden I hear the door being burst in by the cops and they come in and they take her. And she almost died that time, but she went to a hospital on Long Island and so I went to visit her. And the, uh, I tell you, the, the, people that were the patients there seemed more sane than the people that were working there. The people that were working there were like mean and they were, it was just, I felt really bad for the people that were living there because they didn't seem to be getting very good treatment and they were easy to talk to and they, you know, you could see they were suffering, but man, the staff were just nasty. So I sort of got from that that I wanted to work in some kind of institutional setting. I thought I was gonna probably work in a mental hospital. So I moved to Boston. I was in New York, but I, I wanted to get out of New York. So I moved to Boston after college and started looking for jobs in institutions. But um, they wouldn't hire me because they said, you're overqualified for our lower level positions and you're underqualified for our psychological positions, even though you've got a degree in psych. So there's really not a position for you here. So I looked around and looked around. And then finally, I went to this place called the Fernal State School which is a school, that, a residential school in Massachusetts, very large, first residential school for people with uh, developmental disabilities in the country. And it was huge at one point, it was over 2,000 people. By the time I went there, it was about 1,000 people living there. I did my interview and um, it scared the heck out of me because they put me on, my interview was, I talked to somebody for about 15 minutes and then they put me on the ward to provide coverage because they didn't have enough people. So I was on the ward with about 30 people with uh, severe and profound, what they, at that time they called mental retardation, severe and profound mental retardation, which was people, that, and it smelled like feces and urine in the place, and people were walking around half-dressed, and there was only one other staff person there, and there were like 20 people, and somebody came over to me and tried to lift me up and like put me on a, he wanted to apparently hang me up on the wall. I don't know, I don't know what was going on, but <laughs> it really freaked me out. So. I left there and then they called me to offer me the job, but I wasn't ready. And I went to work in the, uh, uh, basically I went to work in the uh, restaurant business. I was a bus boy, which I really, I love that job. Still dream about it to this day now and then. I love being a bus boy. Because when you're a bus boy, you're invisible. People don't know you're there. So I worked in this bar in Harvard Square where there were all these people coming in and you know, when you're busing their table, they just keep talking. It's like you're not even there. So it was a very interesting place to work. And particularly interesting because it was run by a guy who uh, had been one of uh, Timothy Leary's original experimental subjects in LSD at Harvard, right? So this guy 
had like great stories. He had he invented CVS, and uh, he created CVS and then sold it for a whole lot of money. And oh he bought gosh. this bar restaurant in Harvard Square and ran it. And um, there was such an interesting array of people working there. The guy that was the line chef was getting his PhD in ancient Chinese porcelain. It was also a weapons and demolitions expert that went off on, on military excursions now and then, as a secret stuff. The guy that was the dishwasher that I worked with was a, um, his mother had been a college professor in uh, Argentina and then he, she had let the, the Tupamaros use her house for meetings and they were like a, a sort of a Marxist revolutionary group and they got caught and then so he was in, implicated and the government gave him the option to either go fight in Vietnam or to be in exile for five years so he went in exile so this is the guy that was the dishwasher um, you know so there, there was all kinds of people That's like that crazy. it was a it was a crazy place to work one woman one day got a call and she started jumping uh, waitress got a call she started jumping up and down so, oh my god oh my god she had um, uh, been nominated for an Oscar for her small documentary uh, called Kudzu that had Jimmy Carter in it and stuff. She had made this documentary and it got, it got, I mean, those are the kind of people that were working at this bar restaurant, you know, so it was like, this was an amazing place to work. I mean, I've worked in restaurants and bars, but never with... Well, you know, it's Harvard <laughs> Square, caliber. you know, it's Harvard Square, right? So it's, it's, so there were crazy people working there and it was a broad range of people, so... Anyway, I really liked that job, but I always felt like in the back of my mind that I that, you know, that Fernald was like exactly the kind of place that I really should do something. It really just freaked me out. So after about two years working in the restaurant business, I went back to Fernald and to see, okay, can I handle this now? In the interim, there had been a federal consent decree that the parents had parents had brought a lawsuit and there had been a federal consent decree for all of Massachusetts institutions and so the federal government had taken over and said we need active treatment here. Mm -hmm. So I saw Fernald before there was mandated active treatment. There were people there trying to do good work, right? There were people like B. Barrett was there, unknown to me, Carl Binder. There were people that were there that were trying to do good stuff. Kent Johnson, I didn't know who these people were. But the consent decree changed things and so all of a sudden I went back and there was active treatment going on. It was better. It wasn't great, but it was better. So I took a job as a direct care staff person. And when was that? That was in uh, About April 1st of 1979. April, April Fool's 1st. Day. April Fool's <laughs> Day. Yes. Yes. So I started working at Fernal on April 1st of 79. Um, it was a really interesting job. It was like going into a completely new, like I, I worked with, um, a group of men that that had severe, profound uh, developmental disabilities. It was a group of 12 guys, and it was a, a building that was 12 guys on one side, 12 guys on the other side, the east wing and the west wing. I worked on the west wing. The um, it was uh, it was intense. People with really serious behavior problems. One guy, you know, would eat try to break out of the building and so he could eat cigarette butts. Another guy would dive headfirst into the corners of tables and had golf ball sized swellings above each of his eyes. Um, there were just all kinds of just intense behaviors there. Stuff I'd never seen before, stuff I didn't even know existed. And I worked under the tutelage of a behavior analyst there named Mike Lowry who was really good. I learned a lot from him and he would have me do things that I was learning about shaping and 
you know, I started learning about how these things worked. And honestly, I didn't come to sort of the radical behaviorism as a academic becoming like an acolyte of Skinner. I came to it because what works works, right? And I saw the effect of this approach, working with people who were identified as incapable of learning when people could learn new things, right? But at the same time, uh, the institution was understaffed, and I would often at times have to work forced overtime shifts. There was one time when I had to work a forced triple overtime because the staff didn't show up for the 11. I worked from the 3 to 11, three to 11 shift. Staff didn't show up for the 11 to 7, so I had to stay there overnight and cover. And then in that morning, staff didn't show up. So now I'm covering the morning shift after having worked two straight shifts, and, that's, and I was at the point like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. This was about eight months in. I liked the work, I liked the people I was working with, but it was starting to burn me out. Mm -hmm. And one of the people that worked there um, named Kristen Kinnett, who worked at the at the Labor's Hall, said, um, well, there's a, you, you should go apply for this. Actually, Kristen had worked at Labor's Hall. Anyway, said, you should go apply for this job. Okay, so I went to up, I went up, there was this building at the top of Fernal, at the very top of the hill called Kelly Hall, which was um, sort of it had the reputation of being the worst building on grounds and I want to see what does the worst building on grounds look like so I went up there they had an opening for a supervisor so I went up and applied for a supervisor and in my interview Kristen worked there and she cursed him and she said um, well there's a job opening as an assistant staff psychologist and you got a psych degree so why don't you apply for the assistant staff psychologist position which I did and I got that position. So then I'm starting to work as a, quote, assistant staff psychologist. But everybody, it was behavioral, right? The head of the department was Charlie Hammond, who was great. There was the, the Shriver Center was there, the Eunice Shriver Center that did mm -hmm. research. Yeah. There was So I was working in this environment where I, was, I had a caseload, was working. I worked under a, a psychologist named Greg Daramengian, who was great, taught me everything I knew about how to run a staff meeting, really how to write good programs, data collection, doing graphing, you know, real-world behavior analysis. But this is early on. This is before Awada's article. This is before we were looking at functions. This is in the sort of the behavior modification days in institutional work. So, uh, you know, I saw kind of the, the real um, early phases of the implementation of behavior analysis in institutions and then the evolution of how things got better, how active treatment got better, how people started moving out of the institutions into, uh, into group homes. I saw, um, I, and in my time there, I worked at Kelly Hall for about four years, but then I went to some other caseloads for a variety of reasons. But I worked with people that were in wheelchairs, for example, mm -hmm. worked with people that were um, only had mild or moderate um, disability and so were able to talk, were able to go off outside the institution, had all kinds of different problems. I got tasked to be the behavior, uh, the basically the psych department rep to the sexuality committee so we fielded like all of the issues where there were sexual things regarding people in their various buildings. This place was huge, it had, it had like 60 buildings and you know, many, many clients, so all different levels, people with all different kinds of problems, dual diagnosis, all kinds of stuff, children, adults, people, you know, all kinds of stuff. So I got to see a lot of stuff. And um, 
the department head there kept trying to get me to go into the MABA program, the Massachusetts Applied Behavior Analysis. It was UMass had like a behavior analysis program there. And I thought about it, but I didn't really want to go to grad school. So um, I worked there for a while. And uh, in 1984, it's a long story of how I found out about this, but I found out there was this place called Earthwatch that did people could pay money to go be volunteers on scientific research projects. And I hadn't had a vacation for a really long time. My mom had had, had cancer and I'd be going home all the time to help deal with my mom in New York. And I was, I needed a vacation. So I saw that there was this thing called Earthwatch where you could go participate in a research project. And one of the research projects they had was something I was particularly interested in, which was language, teaching language to animals, right? I was really interested in the chimpanzee research, the language research they were doing when I was Back at Harvard Square, I was taking courses at like the Harvard Extension in linguistics and stuff just so I could look at like language training with animals. And so in Hawaii, they were doing language training with dolphins at this lab called the Koala Basin Marine Mammal Lab in Honolulu. So I went out there as a volunteer. I had accumulated all my vacation time. I had a month, so I took a month off to go work at the dolphin lab. And um, it was really cool. It sounds really cool. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to go to Hawaii in the meantime was that there was a volcano erupting, and I thought I could go out there and see a volcano. So, so did you see a volcano? Uh, I saw it had stopped erupting by the time I got out there, oh. but I did see a wall of really hot rock that I started climbing up on, and the bottom my shoes started to melt. So that was it was pretty <laughs> it was pretty cool. It was, a, it was a wall of rock that had not been there like a week before. It had come down the slope into this place called the Royal Gardens District, which, by the way, is no longer there. Um, so, I you know that was really cool, and so then I came back to Massachusetts and worked some more and. Then I, f I had always wanted to travel extensively because my whole life I'd basically, all the information I had about the world was filtered through other people, yeah. right? And I figured I want to see what's really out there. So I had been saving money. I didn't have a car this whole time. <laughs> so I, I didn't have to spend all this money the on The funny thing is, is that doesn't surprise me right. at all right. about you, that right. you didn't, that I didn't you have a didn't car. Have I took a the car. bus and I would you know walk to work. <laughs> So, but that allowed me to save money, even though I wasn't making that much money at Fernal, I could save money. And so I wanted to travel. I'd always wanted to go to China. Mm. So I wanted to go see China, go see like the Himalayas and stuff and travel. I, I really like volcanoes too. So I really wanted to like do a volcano tour. <laughs> so um, in, pre in preparation for leaving, because I decided I'm going to leave and go on this trip in like 1986. There were Earthwatch projects that I saw that I figured, well, I can do these projects as I go. So there's one project that's affiliated with the Koala Basin Marine Mammal Lab that is a humpback whale project where they're studying humpback whales in the wild. They're not doing language training with dolphins at like the Koala Basin Marine Mammal Lab where the dolphins are in captivity, which was really interesting. And the dolphins did learn word strings, although it was all receptive. And I, it would be really interesting to see if Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior were to be used now in doing language training with animals because it, as far as I know, it never has been. Never, no, nobody's ever used Skinner's analysis to apply to trying to teach animals right. language. But in the meantime, or verbal behavior. But in the meantime, there was this whale project 
that looked really interesting and it was studying whales in the wild and then there was this orangutan project that was studying orangutans in the wild that looked really interesting and I'd heard really good things about it so I decided that while I travel go to Asia you know I will go to these two research projects on the way and then kind of launch into China and who knows what will happen so I went in 1986 in March uh, I left and I went to the humpback whale research project and uh, I got along with those people really well. We were, and I would, uh, we'd go out on boats and would look for pods of whales, and then we'd try to keep the boat behind them and track them and take pictures of the underside of their flukes. We also had a shore station where they were doing experiments where sometimes the boat would put a, a uh, speaker underwater. Um, it's called a J9 and then a J11. They're big, big underwater speakers, and would play back whale sounds to the to the whales. And the shore station would be there, and would be tracking the movements of all the whale pods, the groups of whales in the area, through using a theodolite, you know, one of those surveyors tools, and a and a little field computer there, a Commodore, I think it was, the trash. No, it was TRS. It's TRS-80. It's trash. So that was a Radio Shack computer, right, in those days. And, <laughs> Radio um, Shack. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so um, we had the shore station, we had the boats, and then we had a little Zodiac that would also just track whales and get their, their fluke identification because we were trying to see who was traveling with who and see if we could determine social groups. So anyway, we'd play back uh, sounds of the whales underwater and then see did it have an impact on the whales. There was like a... a control tape there were uh, social sounds from Alaska there were feeding sounds from Alaska and there, and there was a humpback whale song from the prior year because the song of a humpback whale evolves year to year new themes come in old themes drop out but everybody's basically singing the same song like you know but they sound they sound different it's like you know you've got Frank Sinatra singing my way versus Sid Vicious singing my way you know they sound different but it's the same song so um we would play sounds back and found that the whales would basically rush the boat or about 20% of the pods in the area would rush the boat when we play the feeding sound and then they'd, they'd go by the speaker and then they'd swim away but the, it drew them in. So we had to be really careful that tape was um, because we don't want the, like the whalers to get you know a hold of that. But they did use that tape for Humphrey the humpback whale that w went up the Sacramento River. That's the tape that they used to draw him back out of the, oh. of the Sacramento River. They were trying to use seal bombs and all kinds of stuff to turn him around. Right. And the skin was starting to slough off. He was getting in trouble. But the Koala Basin Marine Mammal Lab was in on the conference call and they said, well, we've got this tape. And then they used the tape to draw him back out That's into awesome. the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, it was cool. So I worked with them in 86. And then I went on my journey into Asia, right? And I get to the the orangutan project, and I work there where we go in the in the the uh, rainforest and are working with ex captive orangutans that are there in the camp, Camp Leakey, that named after Louis B. Leakey, that was run by this woman named Brute Galdacos, and she was one of the three women that Louis Leakey mentored. There was Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, and Brute. Jane Goodall went to work with the chimps. Diane Fossey went to work with the gorillas, mm -hmm. and then Brute went to work with the orangutans. She was the youngest. So working in the rainforest was really incredible. It was amazing because um, we would get up in the morning, we'd track the orangutans in the wild, take data on them, collect their scat, you know, collect, see what kind of food they were eating, and then when they would bed down for the night, they build they build a new um, 
like a new uh, uh, nest every night to sleep in. And then we would make our way back to camp. And the rule was dinner wouldn't start till everybody got back to camp. And sometimes it was like dark. <laughs> and then if you were on a, a, an orangutan, then you would have to get up at like three o'clock in the morning, go out with the Dayak, who were the native people that live in Borneo. And um, they would be our guides. And then we'd go out and sit and wait for the orangutan to wake up and then track them. And the, the rule was three days and no more. If they, if you could stay with them. So it was amazing because you'd be out there at night when the rainforest is waking up, right? So when the dawn is happening in the rainforest, it's, it's incredible because it's like this symphony. It's sort of like the, you, you hear the, it start to wake up. I can't really describe it. It's just, it's sort of overwhelming because the baboons start to wake up and the, you know, everybody starts to make noise, but it's sort of this, it's, it sounds like an orchestra tuning up. Anyway, um, that was incredible. And I was out there for a couple of weeks, which is interestingly enough where I met my future wife. She was, I'm from Long Island. She was from New Jersey and we met in Borneo. So anyway, uh, it took a while for us to get together, but because um, we were on different continents for one thing. But in any case, um, after that, I stayed in Indonesia for a little while and I was about, I went back to Hong Kong and was about to launch into China and uh, got a telegram from my mom saying she needed me to come home that all thing that there was a big anyway it was all kinds of family stuff I had to go home my mom you know I told you my mom had had cancer and anyway so I went home and I lived with her for a year trying to sell our house and it was a um, I feel that I mutated in that year because <laughs> it was hard it was very hard I they invited me back to the whale project and I couldn't go and I, it was it was hard but after we finally got the house sold and I got my mom resettled in South Georgia, which is where she originally grew up, um, I, I went back to the whale project in 88 and I worked in the whale project from then on. I was the, un, I didn't pay in 1988 when I went to work there. I was like a, a the Earthwatch liaison. So I was responsible for all the volunteers. And then the next year I went back and I was a staff person. The next year I went back and I was a assistant so the assistant field director the next year I went back. Next year I didn't go back, but I did go to Hawaii because I had to go testify to whale harassment trial. And then the next two years I went back as the field director because I had the most experience of anybody and they didn't have any grad students that knew what they were doing. Yeah. So they needed somebody to keep the project going yeah. and knew how to do it. So in 93 and 94, 94 and 95 I went back as field director. And so were all of these little were all of these like little small projects well, it or was did the, it stretch the into project, more of like a full-time job rather uh, than it just did the not volunteers stretch in, it was all, see whales are seasonal they only right. go to hawaii between january okay. and march or april right so that's when i go is mm -hmm. january march or april in the meantime i started working on a dolphin project that was up the coast and working with spinner dolphins but I would always go back to Massachusetts and get a job at Fernald, mm -hmm. right? But okay. I was then I became sort of like this this um, hired gun where I would go into caseloads and sort of work on a caseload and either straighten things out. And then they stopped having me do that, and I started being what was called a QMRP at that time, which stood for Qualified Mental Retardation Professional, basically case manager. Yep. Well-read individuals and most like well-round, like the types of books that in topics that you and I have gotten into conversations about. So I yeah. can like just imagine the types of things you were reading and looking into yourself during this, during this time yeah. frame. That's an interesting question. You know, I, I, 
when I travel, obviously, I read a lot because it was really interesting when you travel. You're outside of your group. Right. You're no longer a group identification, right? You're you're so you get in these different groups. There's like groups of people that are on the road that start seeing each other at like you know guest houses and stuff. Because I didn't want to stay at big hotels. I wanted to stay in like you know local hostels, hostels and right exactly. But then there's always like book exchanges there, right? So yes. I read a lot of Jean Le Carre. I read a lot of I read a lot. I had already read a lot of Herman Hesse. But I read a lot of Herman Hess. I read um, Faulkner. Um, I read a lot of Doris Lessing. I really read. I love Doris Lessing's work, uh, Children of Violence series, and uh, a lot of that. I read C.S. Lewis. I read. Um, I read some, you know, science fiction, Isaac Asimov, and um, and then I was reading, you know, um, gosh, I can't. That's an interesting question. I'll have to remember. I mean, it's I. I used to read, like lots voraciously i used to read um but now i don't i don't do that so much anymore you're kind of busy kind of yeah you're a little bit busy right now a little bit yeah a little but i mean bit. i can just see like the history of stuff that you're reading yeah or have and, read and i read a lot of, behind me on I, your bookcase a lot of comparative religion stuff i read a lot of sufi literature a lot of um like buddhism um a lot of uh different just different religions i was really interested in different religions i've been to lots of different like you know temples and mm -hmm. the kingdom hall for the you know the, basically I, I i'm really interested in the religious experience so i was reading a lot of that a lot of philosophy um a lot of like dt suzuki and uh just you know then krishnamurti i really liked that stuff i liked the the various i was just reading all this stuff about tr people trying to figure out you know what is this all about <laughs> And um, I basically came to the conclusion, conclusion that um, nobody really, it's a big mystery. Nobody really knows. And we just basically try to do the best we can that there's something going on that there's stuff going on that we can't perceive because our perceptual networks are limited. And there's stuff going on all around us that we don't know about. And I'm okay with that. And that uh, I don't think that we have really any clue about what's happening. And so we do the best we can. And science gives us a way to try to um, understand how the universe works around us the best that we possibly can. And that's a good thing because it allows us to do things and to affect change and to do things. But I don't think that um, we've got this all pegged by any, any possible uh, degree. I think there's a lot going on that is... Uh, really interesting that would be nice to find out about that's one of the reasons i was interested in like extrasensory perception because it it indicates something sort of beyond our current understanding of the you know the newtonian sort of a priori space and time or linear and continuous or linear and continuous i don't know that that's exactly right because we keep expanding our knowledge of sort of how things work and we always human beings always seem to go into these new areas that really shock people you know they're paradigm shifts and that's one of the reasons skinner is so interesting is because it's a paradigm shift it's that you know our thoughts don't cause behavior our thoughts basically are behavior and so that's a really profound change in terms of seeing our place in the universe and it still is it's which it, is it still is which is funny to think about it still is to this day to people Oh, for sure. But it, yeah. it's funny because if you look back at like Copernicus, right? When when Copernicus 
concluded, you know, that the Earth was not the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. The sun doesn't go around the Earth, the Earth goes around the sun, right? Well, 50 years later, Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake for basically preaching Copernicus. So it took a long time. People think that, oh, everybody got that, and then it just, everybody understood that the, you know, the Earth was not the center of the universe. It took, like, centuries. For, and people still to this day think the earth is flat, you know, so it's, it, these things take a while, the, these big shifts in perspective um, take a while to sort of infuse into society. It's, you know, same with Einstein, the whole, rel- you know, people start, were saying everything is relative when I was growing up, oh, everything is relative. Well, that's straight out of Einstein yep. from like 75 years ago. You know? I, I know that's still one of my answers to somebody asks me anything, I'm like, that's relative. Right. <laughs> Right. Just depending on the depends situation. Depends on like, where mm-hmm. you're looking at it from, you know. It depends on your perspective. <laughs> so, yeah. So, anyway, after all that, you know, I eventually, um, I was in Massachusetts. I was playing in a rock band. I was playing Grateful Dead and Almond Brothers. I was doing all kinds of stuff. But in the meantime. That also doesn't surprise me yeah, at it was, all. Yeah, it was good. Tom and I have also connected on our <laughs> yeah. love for eclectic music yep. as well. Yep, yep. I've been in bands that played everything from like, you know, Bob Dylan and the Beatles to the Mahavishnu Orchestra. So it's, uh, <laughs> you know, try to play Miles Davis stuff, but then I say trying it, not very well. But um, so anyway, um, having met the person that would eventually be my wife in Borneo, we were in, in letter contact. We were writing letters to each other for a long time. And uh, she came to visit me in Hawaii before she, she got a, she decided to get out of her career and she was working in like defense industries, uh, computer stuff in Washington, D.C. And she didn't want to do that. She wanted to work out in the wild. And so um, in any case, she came before going to school. She went to went back to grad school in Yale School of Forestry. And before going to grad school, she wanted to come to Hawaii and take a trip. And so she, I said, hey, come see me at the whale project. And she came to visit and we realized um, we should probably be together <laughs> and um so after that it took it took a while because we kept being on different continents because she's off studying gorillas in africa or studying sebacapella monkeys in argentina and i'm in hawaii or you know so it took us a few years but then we finally got married <laughs> in uh in um 19 1996. i was gonna say don't get this yeah. wrong yeah i know, I know. <laughs> So we well, yeah. I moved to Florida. I mo- Kathy had gotten a job in Florida working for the Nature Conservancy, doing um, land reclamation and stuff, and doing GIS. She does like mapping and stuff. And so she had moved to Florida. I was in Massachusetts, and I kept visiting her. And we were on the phone every night. And so realizing I could do what I do, which is you know working in the area, especially at that time of developmental disabilities, because mm-hmm. most of my experience was with people adults with developmental disabilities. Um, that I could do that pretty much anywhere. Versus she had gotten a job after she got out of grad school working for the Nature Conservancy here in Florida, and it was like her ideal job. So I decided, okay, I'll move to Florida. And uh, in the interim, I went to, before moving down here, because I moved here in December of uh, 95, we got married in 96. Uh, I went to a FABA conference, Florida Association Behavior Analysis Conference in 95, which is where I met Jose. And because somebody I had worked with at Fernald introduced me to Jose. 
Thank you for listening to Thought Leaders from Opera Innovations. Join us in a couple weeks as we continue our talk with Tom Freeman to see where he thinks the field of behavior analysis is going and where he would like to see it go. As always, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please email us at operantinnovations at abatechnologies.com.